Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball campus in Los Angeles. Today we're going to embark on a conversation with Rabbi Jeffrey Sulkin. Rabbi Sulkin is the senior rabbi of Temple Solel in Hollywood, Florida, and he's also a prominent author. His books have dealt with topics such as Bar and Bat Mitzvah, the role of gender in Jewish life, Israel, and the meaning of career. And today, we're going to engage Rabbi Sulkin regarding his new publication called the JPS B'nai Mitzvah Torah Commentary. Rabbi Sulkin, thank you so much for joining us on the Bully Pulpit. It's great to be here. The theme for our conversation is clearly going to be about B'nai Mitzvah. This is on your mind. I've noticed from your own materials and your writing that you have thought a lot about among other things, the evolution of the bar and bat mitzvah in American Jewish life, in American liberal Jewish life, as an individual phenomenon, as a social phenomenon. So tell us a little bit about the arc of the institution, the, the celebration as an institution. What's going on with B'nai Mitzvah in America that you feel you really have to address? I think that what has happened to bar and bat mitzvah in America is that a celebration that was once relatively minor has taken the center stage in the American Jewish consciousness. What I like to say is that it was once a comma and now it's a period. And so what I have experienced and what American Jews have experienced, certainly in the last uh, almost 70 years since the end of World War II, is that with the growth of an American Jewish middle class and upper middle class, and with more of a focus on children, bar and bat mitzvah has become more important as a rite of passage. We're not always sure what that means, but families do believe that. Moreover, I think what has happened to bar and bat mitzvah in America is that all too often it has become the engine that drives synagogue affiliation. Once that moment in a family's life is over, they are likely, in many cases, to leave the synagogue. So it has grown to an extent that was never imagined by our ancestors. It has become a gazillion dollar a year cottage industry. And I think we need to restore both sanity and sanctity to this rite of passage. And many of my books have been about that theme. So have you encountered the B'nai Mitzvah Revolution, which has been undertaken by my colleague Issa Aaron under the auspices of the URJ and the Hebrewian College? Certainly I've put my toe into it. Hmm. And I think there, there are some valuable insights there. Of course, as Tip O'Neill said, famously all politics is local yeah. and all religion is local. So. A solution in one place might not be a solution in another. There are common themes, I think. One of the things that I have noticed is that the notion of a rite of passage in an anthropological sense is really, I think, engraved on people's hearts and in their souls. So people really believe that this is a rite of passage in an ancient, almost deep way. In some cultures, a boy, for example, would wrestle a lion or would wrestle an elder. And in other cultures, and kids are familiar with this, children receive some kind of ancestral lore. And I think one of the things that we can do, actually, is to almost re-mythologize what Bar Mitzvah and Bat Mitzvah is, and to get kids understanding that we are giving them the wisdom of their ancestors the rabbi, the cantor, the tutor, therefore, assumes the role of Yoda, 
for example. When you say remythologize, isn't it the mythologization of the bar and bat mitzvah that has led to it being disproportionately prominent, that phenomenon that I hear you critiquing? When I say mythology, I'm stripping it away down to its bare basics. We want to get back to the notion that we are a people, we are at our core a tribe, and that when it comes time for bar and bat mitzvah, we give our young people the Torah, which is our tribal wisdom. So one of the things that I do in the new book, the JPS B'nai Mitzvah Torah Commentary, is I write descriptions of every single Torah portion and every single Haftorah portion with sample divrei Torah, with the great ideas that are in each portion, with connections and questions that kids and families can ask, as a way to help them to reclaim this tribal wisdom. Without that, I think the process leaves a lot to be desired. What do you think is going on that's lacking this tribal wisdom in the current way B'nai Mitzvahs are run? I've seen a curious lack of curiosity, hmm. in which I mean that there's such a focus on getting the kids not to be Hebrew literate, that would be great, but to get them to be able to sound the words out, that it doesn't really leave much time or room for kids really to know what this stuff means. At a certain point, I woke up and I said, when a kid is 30, what do we want this no longer a child to remember of this experience? Now, here's something that's happened. Many religious schools, my own for example, I'm the rabbi of Temple Solel in Hollywood, Florida. We have gone down from several days a week to one day a week. The only truly limited resource in life is time. And so if you have a shrinking amount of time and hours with which to teach Hebrew, what happens is that you wind up teaching to the test. There's not much else that's left. So. I'm really exploring now with maybe what we have to do is we have to teach less. We have to be honest about the amount of time that we have and make sure that kids have a quality experience and not judge ourselves by how many verses of Torah they can read. That sounds a lot like the B'nai Mitzvah revolution and including the possibility for local solutions to solving that problem, but, but an appreciation of the fact that we probably shouldn't spend our very limited time, which I think a lot of parents agree with you, that there's tremendous competition for their time. And not so much of that time on decoding the phonetics of the Hebrew and more time doing what I hear you trying to do with the JPS B'nai Mitzvah Torah commentary, which is get at the meaning. It's about meaning. You see, here's what's happened. Even in the space of my career, I've been a rabbi for 35 years, and I've been thinking about Bar and Bat Mitzvah seriously for more than 25 years, ever since I did my doctoral dissertation on the meaning of Bar and Bat Mitzvah in American life. And here's what I've seen in the course of my career. Our kids' secular responsibilities have grown. It's not even that secular attractions have grown. Our children no longer have a choice in the process. If 60 or 70 years ago someone wanted to assimilate, that was a choice that, that person made. But now our kids have no choice. If they go to a competitive school, especially if they go to private schools, then they have committed themselves to a regiment of tutors and after-school sports and various extracurriculars, 
all of which compete for their time, and many of which now sort of line up and say, you should choose me because I will look good on your resume. So we have less time. We also have smaller communities. And when I say smaller communities, there was a generation ago, two generations ago, where we really knew the people that we worshipped with. There was a sense of neighborhood. But what has happened now, especially in the burgeoning suburbs, is there is no sense of community. So there is no kind of structure to bring uh, people into. And then, of course, the last thing I would say that it has become a challenge is that which is also one of our greatest gifts, and that's the Internet. I think the Internet has taught people subtly that many options are open to you. And as one of my friends and colleagues said, holding up his iPhone, he said, you realize you can get anything you need off of this iPhone or anything you need off of an iPad or a computer. You don't even have to go to religious school. You can download everything. You can learn it all. So we are struggling now with so many competitive factors in young people's lives. Before we return to the bully pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes, and whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. So I want to switch gears for a second and want to pick up on something that I noticed in your book that you've chosen to foreground, more than perhaps we've done in recent years, the haftarot, the sections from the prophets that accompany each of the weekly Torah readings for Shabbat. What is it about the haftarot that attracted you in the context of running a Torah commentary for B'nai Mitzvah? Well, you know, the Haftarah for years has been the ugly cousin of scriptural readings. And it used to be that people would focus on the Haftarah, where they'd say, my, you know, I read my Haftarah, you know, in the, in mid, the, in the mid-20th century. Yeah. It, was, it was the Haftarah that determined uh, sort of the Bar Mitzvah. Exactly. And so what has happened, actually, is that the Haftarah, which was really, at one point, you know, the term itself means the conclusion, it was the end of the service. And so people really weren't paying attention at that point. I struggle with the Haftarah because I also struggle with, as a Reform rabbi in the Reform movement, what it means for us to embody what we sometimes call prophetic Judaism. And I think that any encounter with the idea of prophetic Judaism has to start with the encounter with the passages from the prophets and from our historical biblical literature that our young people and that our adults encounter every single week. But here's the problem. When you turn to that material, much of it is turgid. It comes from a time with cultural assumptions that are quite unlike our They don't make any sense to us today. Often, not, not, not without help. But figure this out with me. Our young people are quite capable of entering any number of imaginary worlds. They do so in fantasy life. They do so through movies. They do so through video games. They are capable of entering the Star Wars Wars universe, the Harry Potter universe. 
they, they can live in different narratives and in different cultural systems. So what I wanted to do, I wanted to peel back the mask that had been keeping the Haftarot from many people. And I discovered that it wasn't always easy, that again, the language that's used, the poetry that's used. One of the things that's changed in America in our lifetime is that poetry no longer has a place in our national life. Uh, we don't memorize anymore. We, we certainly don't. don't. We don't recite poetry. But we do know stories. We do know stories. So I have really been very much interested in lifting up the role of the Haftarot and making it clear what prophetic Judaism means. This is a whole big story because I grew up in the reform movement and when we talked about prophetic Judaism, we had the assumption that Amos and Isaiah and Ezekiel uh, were mid 20th century Northeastern liberals. <laughs> All right, we made sure of it. We made sure of it. And so we read the prophets in a particular way. What I hammer down on is I say, look, the prophets were a necessary part of society. They critiqued the people and they critiqued rulers. In that sense, they were very much like journalists today. But they also believed that people could change, that societies could change. And if you get a society to change enough, you create a spiral of hope that will one day bring the Messianic age. That's a good message. It's a good message, although I suspect for many liberal Jews in America today, the concept of a Messianic age at all is actually a little bit big for them to wrap their minds around. Well, I think it was always a problem for our movement. Long ago, we got rid of the idea of a personal Messiah. Right. And we said Messianic age. I have a theory as to why we did. I, years ago, wrote an essay in which I said that I thought that the reason we got rid of the idea of a personal messiah is that Reform Judaism begins in Germany and in Central Europe several decades after the massive failures of the Jacob Frank movement, who's a false messiah, right? right. And Shabbat Tzvi. And we know that there were early Reform families who had Frankists in their families. Gershom Sholem has actually reproduced the will of one Frankist family, including the mention of the family by the name of Dembitz, as in Louis Dembitz Brandeis. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about old line reform Jews here. And I'm guessing that in the early decades of the, of the 19th century, there was profound embarrassment over this. And so they just got rid of it altogether. Right, right. I mean, there, there may be simpler explanations as well, which is that one wants to distance oneself from personal messianism altogether, which is first and foremost associated with Christianity. Absolutely right. You know, many Jews are allergic to anything that seems too Christian. Yeah. So one of the things that I teach kids in the JPS B'nai Mitzvah Torah commentary that they're shocked to learn about is that, hey, guess what? Jews actually believe in something of us that continues beyond death, the soul or whatever. It's not really in the Bible. You can't find it in the Bible. Nor is it even really fully fleshed out in post-biblical literature. It's, it's addressed, it comes in, there's, there's narrative, there's color, but there's very little skeleton. The actual outlines are, are minimal. I once made a joke to someone that if Rabbi Akiba had leased the use of the notion of olam haba, the world to come, which Christians call heaven. And if he had taken out a lease 
And if he had licensed the use of this notion to Christianity at the very beginning and said, every time you use this idea, you have to pay us a shekel, <laughs> we'd be really rich. <laughs> so there's another powerful quality of foregrounding the Haftarot, which is the following. The Haftarot were assigned to the Torah portions by the rabbis. There's no biblical association necessarily between a given section of prophets and the Torah portion. Sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't. But the choice to excise one Haftarah and assign it to the Torah portion for a given week was an act of interpretation. It was a choice that the rabbis were making by saying this Haftarah brings a Torah theme into starker relief. And that's the theme I want to highlight for you. When we understand the mechanics of the Haftarah as a rabbinical choice for highlighting themes, we understand the steps of active Jewish formation and reformation of our own Jewish tradition. And that's a reform message. I think it's a beautiful message, and it certainly is a reform message. Sometimes the links between the Torah portion and the Haftarot are, are, are thin. Are abstruse, right. They're hard to see. And very stretched. And sometimes there are no connections. Right. So for example, in the JPS uh, B'nai Mitzvah Torah commentary, when we get to the weeks between Tisha B'Av and Rosh Hashanah, those seven weeks, where the Haftarot are all from the prophet known as the second Isaiah, right? The Sheva de Nechemta, the seven weeks of comfort. What's amazing is how even though those Haftarot have nothing to do with the Torah portion, they create a almost a visual effect of going from the destruction of Jewish sovereignty and making God king again. It's really rather soaring and rather incredible. So you have an opportunity to pick out an aspect of B'nai Mitzvah that we all can identify. Choose for us something about the B'nai Mitzvah that we all know already, but that you think is golden, that you, in all of your efforts to revitalize and demand more and, and bring the Bar Bat Mitzvah to a level that is even more inspiring, what's one thing that currently exists that you think we already have right? I think in large measure, we have gotten altruism down. The ubiquity of the mitzvah project, which gets kids thinking outside themselves. Now, I have a quibble. There was a time when such mitzvah projects were Jewish. They now tend to be very universal, yes. disease of the weak. And one of the things I say to parents, and they're often surprised and even glad to hear it, is that this is their opportunity to teach their kids how to give Jewishly. I say to parents, if your kids don't give to the ASBCA, someone else will. But if a generation stops giving to Federation or Israel or whatever, that chain is broken and we're never going to get that back. So I think we've done that really well. And kids are really well focused on the sense that mitzvot bring them outside of themselves. And I think there are many other opportunities to build upon that. There are other things that we could be doing and that I like and I've seen in various places. I love to tell the story about how when my great aunt died, I made a shiva call and uh, a kid came and he led the shiva minion. He was no older than 14 years old and I asked my great uncle, who was that kid? Who was that masked man? And he shrugged and he said, a kid from the shul. And I kind of loved the fact that he identified this kid 
as a kid from the shul. Right. That was the point of contact for them. Someone must have said to this kid, listen to me, Jamie, Chuck, Stevie, now that you're bar mitzvah, old enough to be responsible for the mitzvah, old enough to make connections, we're going to teach you a beautiful and delicate mitzvah to do. And I'm trying to think of anyone figured out that what this does is it helps kids conquer the natural and normal fear of death. And even a much simpler fear, much less psychologically devastating fear, which is just the fear and discomfort of knowing how to be comforting to people who are in the midst of mourning. That's, that's a huge thing socially. Kids don't know how to give condolences without stammering and being uncomfortable or not doing it at all. That alone is a powerful, powerful tool to fulfill one of our most hallowed mitzvot. One of the things we're experimenting with at Temple Solel in Hollywood is editing the amount of Hebrew that kids do. And I've said to the cantor and to our director of education, if we're going to make this about Hebrew skills, let's make sure we're focusing on Hebrew prayers that kids are going to use over and over again. And the prayer that kids are going to need to know is Kaddish. And I want every kid to learn how to read Kaddish and lead Kaddish for the first time at their service as a way of entering Jewish adulthood. Well, clearly we have a lot of work ahead of us, but it's uplifting and exciting. And I want to thank you for your publications and for taking the time to talk to us. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.